Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today is Thursday, January 21st. The U.S. is back in both the WHO and Paris Climate Accord. Mid-court hugs are out in the NBA, and we're focused on the speed of your internet service. Net neutrality. It's a buzzword and to some extent a political litmus test. Democrats like Joe Biden support it. Republicans like Donald Trump don't. And as you might imagine, all of that means things might be changing. So what is net neutrality? Well, in short, it's the idea that Internet service providers must treat all communications equally. That means uh, if you use AT&T, it can't stream your HBO Max at a high speed, but your Netflix at a lower speed just because AT&T happens to own HBO or have your Instagram feed update faster or slower based on how much you're paying for service. In short, it's that we're all supposed to be able to travel the intertubes at the same speed, kind of like the common carrier concept that long ruled telephone calls. Now, net neutrality was a tech priority of the Obama-Biden administration, but then Trump basically nixed those rules, moving the battle into the courts, particularly as some states sought to implement their own rules in the absence of federal ones. The bottom line here is we all rely on broadband, particularly during the pandemic. In fact, for many, it's become a literal lifeline. The rules, though, remain very uncertain, which isn't what you want for a lifeline. So we want to dig into the state of net neutrality with Nilay Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of The Decoder podcast. So Nilay, can we start here? Donald Trump kind of changed the net neutrality laws a couple years ago. For the average consumer, internet user, after that, what, if anything, actually changed? I think it's it's really hard to see the change. It's it's more like a, a boiling a frog. The temperature just got hotter. What you really saw was, in particular, the big ISPs that own content studios started playing pricing games with their own content. So if you're an AT&T customer, you get HBO Max for free. It's excused from your data cap that maybe wouldn't have been allowed under the Obama rules. If you are a Verizon customer, HBO Max hits your data cap, so it costs you more to watch HBO Max than if you're an AT&T user. That's a pretty hidden pricing change, but given the scale of these services, their centrality in sort of a cord-cutting environment, they're real costs that are getting passed on to consumers in various ways. You know, the kind of basic principle of net neutrality was on speed, right? You know, the idea that if you and I or you know, that if you're my next door neighbor and we both have the same internet service, my Netflix should work as fast as yours should. It shouldn't be because I'm paying a little bit more to Verizon or AT&T or whoever my provider is. On the speed side, does it seem like the kind of this doomsday concerns about throttling, et cetera? Did any of that seem to come to pass yet? Some of it has come to pass. There was a, a very famous case in which Netflix speeds on the Comcast network just went down until Netflix decided to enter into a peering arrangement with Comcast. There was a little bit of debate over whether that fit into the existing net neutrality framework or not, but you have seen the larger ISPs find ways to extract rents from major service providers in order to make their speeds higher. What has not happened was what the broadband industry really wanted to happen, which is something they called the two-way marketplace, where they would provide fast lanes and major service providers would pay for them in order to get preferential access. That was a dream of the industry. They were explicit about it, and it just really hasn't come to pass. Why do you think not? Given that Trump did kind of get rid of the rules, why didn't that come to pass? Because it seemed to be something that on the industry side was going to work out for everybody. Uh, two reasons. I think one is uh, just simple politics. People hated this idea that truly the consumers hated 
this idea. That's where all the grassroots uh, support for net neutrality came from. And on the other end is sort of a business stability question. The rules were changed. Then there was a flurry of lawsuits about those rules changing. And then some states like California and New York passed their own net neutrality rules. And there's been a flurry of lawsuits over whether the federal rule change would preempt the state rules. And so the broadband providers haven't wanted to build a business on unsure footing that they know everybody's going to hate. So speaking of which, we have a new president now as of the last 24 hours or so. Is it a fair assumption or understanding that Biden not only supports net neutrality, but he kind of wants to return to what was the Obama-Biden policy? I think it's a fair assumption that Biden supports net neutrality in that he hasn't said anything about it. And one assumes that he's going to carry over a bunch of Obama-era policies and some Obama-era staff, particularly the FCC. It's all but certain that some amount of net neutrality regulation will come back. What will change is the amount of noise about Section 230 and neutrality on the application side is very loud. And so I think it will be difficult to move forward on the broadband access net neutrality question without somehow taking up the Twitter neutrality, Google neutrality question. Kaz, why? Would the idea be that the Biden FCC would have to go to Congress to do this, which is where that noise would mostly be? Because you'd have Democratic control of the FCC. If it was just an FCC vote, in theory, Democrats could just win that. Yeah, procedurally, yes, that's one option. Everyone sort of agrees that the best way to handle net neutrality is not to give it to an FCC that swings back and forth between administrations. The best way to do it is some legislation. And if that's what everyone believes, and even some FCC commissioners believe this, then you're going to end up in Congress and Pandora's box is open. Well, which goes kind of the thing you were talking about earlier, that, that you had companies that had this business stability question. How problematic, and, and I have never really felt bad for an ISP in my life, but in theory, how problematic is it for an ISP when you go from Obama to Trump to Biden, and you do know that every four or maybe every eight years, the entire underpinning of your business model can be flipped, at least the regulations of it can be flipped? Oh, they hate it. And if you look at what AT&T or Comcast or Verizon have said about net neutrality over the years, the rhetoric has changed pretty dramatically. And I think that is a reflection of the fact that no one loves their ISPs. They don't actually have a lot of political capital with the public to spend. And they know that net neutrality on balance, as they're trying to expand their content offerings, might help them. So they've gone from, we don't need this, we're fighting it, we're filing, Verizon famously filed a lawsuit against another version of the rules that provided net neutrality. They've come all the way to, we need legislation, we'll help you write it. Given that if you're going to take 230 and put that into this, or at least a piece of 230 and put this in there, how optimistic are you that there could actually be legislation passed? And it would seem that this is something that we're talking about possibly of years of negotiation to get to a, a final place. You know, I think it really depends on how sophisticated Congress wants to be. Oh, well, then it can be done tomorrow. They, I mean, if it's about congressional sophistication, this should be done immediately. Well, you know, on both sides of the aisle, broadband access is not controversial. You see, like, Senator Wicker say, I need broadband access for my constituents. He's put forward a plan. He's a staunch conservative. So if you can bundle some sort of broadband plan in with a net neutrality regime, you might be able to avoid the chaos of 230. If you start from a place of who can block and censor the internet, now you've opened Pandora's box and nothing will ever get done. But I think that the narrow question of, hey, did the pandemic teach us that broadband access in America isn't great? There's almost no disagreement about that. You, you got kids parking next to school buses to do their homework off of hotspots in, in school buses. Like That's a horrible situation. 
and it has affected everyone in a bipartisan way. So if you can get broadband legislation and say as a condition of a broadband subsidy package, we're requiring net neutrality, that's a pretty simple path to follow that doesn't necessarily go in, into the crazy zone. But there's a lot of action in the crazy zone, and that might be where the interest and the enthusiasm actually lies. Final question for you, as you mentioned earlier, there's still a bunch of ongoing court cases uh, for a variety of reasons, including some about state rights versus federal rules. Are those cases kind of less important right now in the context of if we get some sort of federal overarching legislation, it kind of gets rid of those cases altogether? It depends on how big of a wonk you are about uh, Chevron deference to agencies, right? There's a, a big move on the conservative side to get rid of deference to agencies. So the central question of the, of the state versus federal lawsuit is, if the federal agency declines to make a rule, can the, can the state step in? And if the federal agency says, we're making a rule and we're making a rule that says the states can't make a rule, is that an overstep? I think that's a pretty central governance question that a lot of people are interested in, regardless of whether it's net neutrality or land use rights or, or what have you. So I think that will continue. Nilay Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of the Decoder podcast, which you can get on Apple or Spotify or anywhere else that has podcasts. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Facebook, which said it'll place the fate of Donald Trump's account in the hands of its independent oversight board. You might recall that Facebook suspended Trump's page shortly after the Capitol Hill riot, a decision that many have praised and many others have denounced. Facebook, for its part, says it believes its decision was, quote, necessary and right, but also says that it's such a major move that it needs outside validation. And that's why it's enlisted this so-called oversight board, a five-person panel that's designed to operate independently of Facebook, except that it has financial and technical support from, ah, oh yeah, Facebook. Today, we're also watching the Bitcoin roller coaster as the price fell more than 8%. If you add in yesterday's loss for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies like Ether, the overall crypto market has lost more than $100 billion in value since yesterday morning. There's no real explanation for it, though, outside of generic commentary about this being a, quote, correction, which seems kind of fitting for such an insanely volatile asset class. And finally today, Bernie Sanders' Vermont chic inauguration look clearly has won the internet to the point where Amazon's current deal of the day is a very similar looking winter jacket. But let's not focus on the jacket. Let's focus on the mittens for a moment because those aren't sold on Amazon and they won't be because they're unique, made by a Vermont teacher two years ago out of old sweater wool and lined with fleece made from recycled bottles. So while Joe Biden wore Ralph Lauren and Kamala Harris wore Christopher John Rogers, the designer of the day was Vermonter Jen Ellis, who tweeted, this mitten frenzy is really distracting me from getting my mid-year report cards done. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producers, Tim Shovers, Naomi Shaven. In good Vermont spirit, have a great national granola bar day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.